It's good to see everyone this morning. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be verses 3 through 5. It's interesting in this longer section, verses 3 through 12, is one continuous sentence in the Greek. So if you're an English teacher, run-on sentences are okay. Because that's exactly what you have, all the way down to verse 12. One continuous sentence, verses 3 through 12. There's a lot of ways to divide it up, but we're just going to take verses 3 through 5 this morning. And let me read those to you, verses 3 through 5. Doug quoted the first verse we're looking at, but... Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3 says, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, excuse me, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Few believers have had to experience what these believers are experiencing that Peter is writing these words to in the first century. They're, they're being mistreated brutally. They're, some are being killed or will be killed. They're losing their possessions. They're driven from their homes just because of their commitment to Christ. They are truly aliens and the scattered we see in verse 1. They are experiencing that reality all the time. That is the audience of the original audience of this letter passed on to us. Uh, and what Peter is doing is providing hope in the midst of the persecution. And his goal is to help them stand firm because the, the temptation would be not to stand firm and to remain steadfast in the trials of this life. And telling them how to live later in the book uh, in, the, in a hostile world. Boy, this is a relevant message to us, folks. A very relevant message. First Peter has a lot to say to us as we are feeling more and more by every, as I said last week, every new moral low of our society makes us feel more and more like we are aliens in this world. We do not breathe the same air. We see that all around us. Things that are affirmed as right when we know good and well they're wrong because the word says they're wrong. A society that is declaring what is wrong right and what is wrong right. Did I say that right? You got the point. But that's just turning everything upside down. And we are feeling more and more that we're in the world but not of it. This is not our home. And that's what they were feeling, and that's what they were experiencing, the reality of that. And so Peter starts reminding them, and he's going to do it in an interesting way here this morning, that life will not always be this way. This earth is not your home, and the key to coping, and this is interesting, with the temporal burdens of life is to remember the blessings to come. That is not our normal default. I borrowed that word from somebody. I thought it's a good word. That is not our normal default. No, tell me how to deal right now. I live here and now. Tell me what to do right now about what's going on. Well, that's not how Peter starts the letter. He takes them into the future in the beginning of this letter. 
He takes them to the big picture in this letter. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 73. The psalmist was confused and could not understand what was going on, why evil was being victorious, why all those things were going on until he got into the sanctuary of God, until he got before God and then he saw their end. It's almost until you're thrown up against the Godhead do you start to understand how to deal with the present. And you understand how, how the big picture is. That's what he wants to do. Big picture. I want you to see your future. You, you must understand your future to know how to deal with the present. That's how he starts. And it's not that he's not going to address some ways to live in a hostile culture. He's going to do that with some very practical instruction, but he does not start out that way. And though you and I would be saying, come on, don't tell me this future stuff. Tell me right now stuff. So he starts with worship, and that's where you always start. When you're going through a trial, can I recommend this is just good counsel? Throw yourself up against God. That's what he does. When it's so confusing, and you can't answer your, the questions, and you don't know why what's going on, why what is happening is happening, throw yourself up against God and worship. That's what he starts out with, worship. God is bigger, and God's plan is bigger than your circumstances. That's what he's telling them. Verse 3 of chapter 1 is a doxology. It's, um, it's like this. It's like Peter. It's neat. It's not neat how Peter does this. It's like Peter, through the Holy Spirit, writing through the Holy Spirit, is basically taking his hand under the chin of these beleaguered believers and lifting it up. They're downtrodden, and he's kind of lifting it up with this doxology, with this, this worship. That's what worship is supposed to do, to get your mind off of you and your circumstances and onto God. And that's what he's doing. Nothing going on in your lives, he's going to say, compares to what's waiting for you. And so he tells them the blessings of salvation. And, and these are truths that fuel worship. These are truths that fuel your worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed means praiseworthy. Blessed is a eulogy. It's the word for eulogy. When I do a funeral, you go to your funeral, you hear a eulogy. You hear things about, good words about someone who you're honoring, the memories you have of someone. It's someone who's been called out for distinction, uh, to, to exalt their reputation. That's what you do in a eulogy. That's what the word blessed means there. That's what you do with God. Make much of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same term, same sentences used by Paul in Ephesians 1 uh, and 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as well. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because the object of our worship is God. We do not gather to exalt opinions. We do not, exalt to exalt, we do not gather to exalt men. It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the object of our worship. And we're not here to worship our preferences either. This is important. We're not here to worship our preferences either. A lady told me recently, she says she's trying to find a church. She's trying to find a church with people like her. She's trying to find a church where people like the same kind of music she likes, the same kind of programs she likes, the same kind of preaching style she likes. 
I told her, I said, if you find that church, don't go to it. That's not the kind of church you need to be in. You need to be in a church that exalts God, has a high view of God. That has got to be fundamental to any church. We are here to honor and worship and exalt and make much of the reputation of God, the one true God. We don't live for ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. If the biggest thing on our mind is ourselves, we're not going to get very far. You will not get very far. So just lift up your eyes heavenward. That's what he's saying to these beleaguered believers. Lift up your eyes heavenward. Place your mind on things above. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We lift up and, and praise to God. Hebrews 13 says, let us continually offer up praise to God. You know what changes people? Blessing God or thanking God. That changes you. you know, the fear of COVID and the fear of the coming future and the fear of this and the fear of that is absolutely stealing our thankfulness. We are not thankful. Our God is Sovereign, our God, through his providence, brings the things he brings, and yet we just complain and live in fear. Live in fear, and we don't worship when we're fearing man and thinking that worship is all about our survival. It's not. These people... They, Peter's not promising they're going to survive another day on this planet. He's just saying, worship God. He's got your future in his hands. He's got your future, his future in your hands. Worship him. Praise him. Be thankful to him. All those are wrapped up in the word bless God. We just need to stop filling our minds with this cable news, 24-hour stuff that just constantly talks about all the problems of a fallen world. That's your focus. You're never going to be thankful. You're going to be fearful. You're going to be fearful. If you want to talk about something that does not fuel worship, it's fear. Fear does not fuel worship. But thoughts about God and praise to God and thankfulness to God and and focusing on God, man, that is where we need to go when life is hard. And that's how Peter starts this. He doesn't say, step one, to deal with persecution. He doesn't say that. He doesn't give you 15 things to do. No. Store up food. Go hide in a bunker. Go do this. Go do that. No. Worship God. He says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me make just a comment about that. This has caused some confusion to people sometimes. God is the God of Jesus the man, okay? Jesus the man. He is the Father of Jesus, the Son of God. He is the Father of the Son of God deity. So you have in this one statement, you have reference to the humanity, Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, equal to God. Very confusing. Let me see if I can say this another way. Jesus was the first one to call God his Father. They about threw rocks at him when he did that. Because you're making yourself equal to God by calling God your Father. 
God is our Savior God in the incarnation, but He's also God the Son in the Trinity. He had to be the Son of Man, that's humanity. He had to be the Son of Man to die. God cannot die. God the Father cannot die. God in the Trinity cannot die. God the Son cannot die. But Jesus can die, the Son of Man. Jesus as the Son of Man can die. He had to be the Son of God to die for us. Do you understand that? Not just any man could die for me. It had to be the God-man. I have no idea if I just cleared that up or not, but that's the point that's being made in that. Son of Man, Son of God, humanity, deity, all wrapped up in that one statement. And then there's a lot of richness in the next verses. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. This obliterates, by the way, that one statement right there in verses to follow obliterates that man's free will is the cause of our salvation. It is not. It's not human effort. It's not human means. It's not flesh and blood that causes your salvation. I cannot bring the power. I do not have the power to bring a dead heart to life. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is the one that does that. He regenerates. Born again. That's the word born again. Born again means He regenerates. If you have not ever been regenerated, you're not a Christian. Understand. If you have not been changed from within, You're not a Christian. He causes that born from above reality to take place in me. He does that. I don't do that. Turn to John chapter 3. You see this in John chapter 3. Our thoughts kind of get turned to this passage in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. He says in verse 1, this is about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He was a Pharisee. He was probably a leader of the Pharisees. He comes by night to see Jesus because he doesn't want to be seen because Pharisees didn't like Jesus. They were at odds. And here he was a secret, least at this point, secretly wanting to know more. Eventually, Nicodemus will become a believer, we're told, later. But at this point, he's not. He's inquiring. And he says this in verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Guy's pretty high up. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Listen, you authenticate your message continuously by the very signs that you perform. The prophets did that too. You're doing that. Something's going on here. See, Nicodemus was a Jew, and the Jews believed that you became, you got into the kingdom of God by heritage. You got into the kingdom of God because you were a Jew. You got into the kingdom of God because of your family. A lot of people think that. I was raised in a good family. I was raised in a Christian family. And that's how they were counting on to get him into the kingdom of God. 
See, he, but Jesus is going to tell him here, you gotta, it, it, it takes two births. It takes two births to get into the kingdom of God. That's what he's about to tell him. See, Nicodemus was hung up on single birth theology. We're all born into this world physically. But Jesus is about to tell him about a required second birth that must happen if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Look what he says in verse 3. This is, he's answering something, answering what's on his mind maybe, but we're not even told. He doesn't give Nicodemus time to ask a question. He just answers and says to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, regenerated, it's the word, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You say I'm a teacher, you are correct, you need to plead with God to open your eyes. You need to plead to God to raise your dead soul. You must be born again. He's not giving him any steps here either. He's not telling him how to be born. He's not telling him you step one. He's not, no steps. This is a reality. This is what must happen. This is what must happen to you if you're going to see the kingdom of God. One birth is not enough. Two are required. A second birth no matter how much ritual stuff you do, Nicodemus, you need to plead to God that you will, He will do a work in you. He will open your blind eyes to see the truth. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time to his mother's womb, can he? And be born, can he? Can't reverse the process of birth, can you? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, I believe this is talking about physical birth, born of water, physical birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth or regeneration cannot enter the kingdom of God. Everybody is born into this world identified with Adam, but to get into the kingdom of God, you must be identified with Christ through rebirth. And there is no formula for that to happen. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Two births. In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see where the Spirit is going to land next. You just see the effects. That's how it is with wind. When you get a hurricane, you don't know where the wind is coming from, but you see the effects, right? And that is the same with the Spirit of God. God the Spirit regenerates according to His sovereign will. Those to whom He will have mercy on. Those to whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world. The wind eventually blew onto Nicodemus. Has it blown on you? Have you been regenerated? You can sit in church your whole life. You can go through the waters of baptism. You can say all the right things and quote all the right verses and not be regenerated. Christianity is not praying a prayer and going through the emotions of some rituals. The Christianity is being regenerated. A second birth. And that's a work of God. It's not the work of the preacher. It's not the work of the, some formula. It's the work of God. God causes that to happen. He's the one that does that. He's the one that puts you in this world as aliens. He chose you, we saw last week, to be aliens. He chose you to go against the grain of this world. He is the one that borns you again to go against this world's grain. He did that. 
Could you imagine a gospel tract that says, come to Jesus and die for him at the, in, the, in the Colosseum when the lions attack you? How would that sell? No. But when God does the work, when God does the work, oh my goodness, people were willing to die. You explain that to me, unless it's a work of God. People were willing to die, to stand against the current of the world because they were changed from within. And they say, I know, I, I was once blind, but now I see. According to his great, the words massive mercy, he calls you out and he, bore, he birthed you. He caused you to be born again by his great mercy. Listen, God's holiness de- de- demands that you be punished. God's holiness demands that sinners be punished. And I fall in that category and so do you. And he could rightfully judge every sinner. He would be totally just because everybody has rebelled against him. But God saved us. God saved us and regenerated us and caused us to be born again, not based on what we have done, not based on anything attractive about us, but in spite of what we have done. And he's not going to make us go through his wrath because he has shown us mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, Romans 9.15 says. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, dead people cannot make themselves alive. You can go to the cemetery, and you can preach the same message to that cemetery, and nobody is going to come up out of the grave. Nobody is going to respond because they're all dead. But he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead, made us alive. That's regeneration, friends. That's regeneration. I cannot respond to God. I cannot respond to the gospel. I cannot follow Jesus. I have no desire for Jesus. I have no desire for his word. I have no desire for righteousness. I have no desire for anything the Bible talks about until God does something in me to give me that. So by his mercy, he saved us. And mercy is, not just, mercy is not just giving us what we don't deserve, but it's not giving us what we do deserve. You see the difference? Not giving me what I do deserve. I deserve hell. And the longer I live, my friends, the more I realize how much I've been saved from. I realize more and more my sinfulness and more and more the depth of his mercy that we sang about. It's, it's incredible to me that he would save a sinner like me. And that should be your prayer as well as you go along and you start seeing, I see my sin more. You knew what I was going to be like and you still saved me. Why? What would make you do that? It's mercy. According to his massive mercy, great mercy, massive mercy. Then he says in continually, we are fueling worship here, fueling worship here by all of these statements. You understand that? 
Here's another truth here. According to his great massive mercy, he caused us to be born again, notice, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, we, we have a hope. We have a hope that is alive. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And this word hope here is a Christian concept. The world does not have this word. Oh, they got a word that sounds just like it, but it's not this word. The world knows nothing of it. They know nothing of the certainty of hope beyond the grave. Paul talks about the unbelieving world like this. They have having no hope and without God in the world. In uh, Thessalonians, he's talking about grieving over your loved ones who have died. He says, we don't grieve as those who have, no, we do grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We grieve. We face the same problems everybody else in the world has. We go through the same disappointments and discouraging things everybody else has. But we have hope. Ups and downs, but we have hope. And that's because it's been put in us when we were born again. He put hope in us. Biblical hope is not a vague wish. Like, I hope we have pizza for lunch today. Or I hope, last week, the Bengals win the Super Bowl. Or I hope I win the lottery. That's not what we're talking about. Those are vague wishes. That's not biblical hope. And it's not positive thinking. Just think positively. Get that out of your vocabulary. That's not biblical thinking. Just think positive. I, I, I read that book to my grandchildren. Maybe I haven't read it to the last grandchild yet, but I've read it to most all of them about the little train that thought he could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And you gotta get to the end of the book so you can see did he make it, and he did. But that's just positive thinking. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's not it. But so it's not vague wishes. It's wishes. It's not vague. Uh, excuse me. It's not positive thinking. It's defined as certain expectation, confident expectation, anticipation. I'm looking forward to something. To you beleaguered believers who are facing persecution, you have anticipation. You you have this confident hope. It's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope because he's alive. It's based on, not based on feeling, it's tied to the resurrection of Christ. You see that in that verse? It's tied to the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the grave. And you remember our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ did not rise, your faith is in vain. If Christ did not rise, you're still in your sins. If your Christ did not rise, you who have hoped in, for Christ in this, this life only should be pitied. <clears throat> now our hope is a, a confident expectation if Jesus did not raise then our hope is left in the grave with him if he didn't raise but he did he rose from the dead the martyrs when they would stand around for the flames to be lit and for the 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 lions to be released they sang praises to God because the tomb was empty (laughs) death is just a 
Death would just be a passing moment. And then I'm in the presence of Christ. That's what it is for a believer. Death is, is just a moment. The process is a, is a little longer, no doubt, but the moment of death is just a passing moment and I'm into the presence of Christ because he rose from the dead. And if that happened to him, that happens to me. And so I have this living hope because I have a living Lord and it's alive and it's within me and no matter what my circumstances are, and I have this hope. And the trials of life and the sins that so easily entangle me cannot take away that hope. It can't. It's not like that, folks. It's not like that. If you're a true believer, you have hope. You have a hope that cannot be canceled by tribulations and trials because it's from God. That's who gave you that hope. That's why when somebody just sits around being hopeless all the time, I have to ask them, well, do you know Christ? Do you really know Christ? Because I'm not just making up a word I'm trying to get you to believe in. No, this is something he puts there. I don't put it there. Notice in verse 4, keeps on going here. Another truth for us in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, we have an eternal, eternal inheritance. Now, you've heard this word a lot, and you say, oh, I don't know what that means. That's so future. Talk about right now. No, this is important. This is important. This is your eternal inheritance. This is what awaits you. This is because you're an heir with Christ. This is what you will see one day. It's a term that's used over and over, but it's, a, it's incredible promise. In the Old Testament, the Jews were, were offered the land of Canaan as their inheritance. And I believe one day they're going to have that. But in the New Testament, it's expanded to us, and it's much different meaning in the New Testament. Fuller detail. We have eternal life as part of this inheritance. We have the kingdom of God part of this inheritance. We have the sealing of the Spirit of God as this inheritance. We're told our inheritance is going to include rewards. We're told that salvation is, is referred to as our final inheritance, excuse me, final inheritance. We've been told that we will inherit the earth. We've been told that Revelation 21 will be our reality, a new heavens and a new earth, and God will be in our midst. There will be no crying, no sadness, no tears. New earth, new heavens, new earth, all of that. See, all the liberals and atheists are trying their best. They're trying their best to save the earth. Guess what? They're not going to save the earth. This is not theirs to save. God is saving it as our inheritance for his kingdom. He'll have a new heavens and a new earth one day. And he will recreate it all. And it will be part of your inheritance so the earth never did belong to them, but one day the meek will inherit the earth. It's hard to imagine this. I get it. It's hard to imagine all of this. 
2 Corinthians 2.9 says it like this, Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. You're understanding this? There's, you haven't even thought the thoughts that all that God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even com- comprehend the future inheritance. You can't even compare it to anything in this life. Don't even try to. A glorified body, sinless, made into his image, Revelation 21, no more wars, no more tears. Perfect environment. Uh, We don't know that. We don't know any of that. Peter uses interesting words here. He uses, it's interesting, he speaks in negative, okay? Negatives simply because there's no way to compare. Uh, He has to compare it to something because he can't describe it. That's the point. It's indescribable. So he uses negatives. He tells you what it's not. (laughs) It's not perishable. It's imperishable. It's immortal. Nobody dies. I, I don't know a life without death. I don't know. I don't know what that's like. I see death all around me, people dying all the time. I'm dying, decaying. It's also part of that word. You see in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable is gonna be put into the ground to bring forth the imperishable. He uses that illustration from nature to talk about our resurrected bodies. You're going to put this perishable, corruptible body into the ground and out is going to come imperishable, never die, incorruptible, sinless, new glorified body. But he uses that word imperishable. It's not going to perish or pass away. It's the it won't come to ruin, though the outer man is decaying now, and, but it will not be destroyed then. It's indestructible. Don't speculate of what your body is going to look like, by the way. Somebody, you know, the last thing I want is this 68-year-old body to be glorified forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I don't want, I said, God, please, don't let it be like this. But that's just speculation. So we try to compare it to something. Some people say, well, you're going to go back to your 33-year-old body. Because that's what Jesus was. Let's just, let's don't go there. Just avoid that kind of thinking. You can't imagine it. You can't conceive of it. You can't even compare it to anything in this life. Then he uses the word undefiled, meaning unstained and unpolluted. This talks about sinless, totally sinless. You're not going to be in the presence of sin anymore. It can't be stained by sin anymore. It's it's a life without sin. All we know is a life of sin. We see sin everywhere. There's not going to be any crime, any fear. Imagine a life without locks or alarms. No keys are going to be necessary. Everybody's just going to enjoy life without fear. There's no prisons in heaven. Uh, It'll be okay to defund the police then because there won't be any need for them. I mean, okay, this is a world we cannot imagine, but that's what it's going to be. No radar guns. (laughs) Nothing like that. 
Peter is telling these informed, these scattered believers that everything about, everything about your inheritance is undefiled. Sin no more. <laughs> we will be completely conformed to his image. There are days I feel close to God. I'm talking about right now. I feel close to God, but you know what? I just know around that next corner, I'm going to feel distant again because I'm going to do something that's going to hinder my relationship with him. (laughs) I get tired of that, quite frankly. I want to enjoy this unhindered thing rather than this hindrances. I don't have to live with that one day. I'll sin no more. I won't get tangled up in my sins no more. Always come into God confessing the same sins over and over again. I get tired of that. I just get tired of that. (laughs) Imagine a time when the satisfaction of my needs are not corrupt. (laughs) Imagine that. Undefiled. This is your inheritance, you believers, saints. It's so rich. It's so rich. I would not be doing you, I'd be doing you a great disservice if I did not start with this, Peter says. And then he adds another one, fade away, immutable. That's the word immutable, fade away. Fade away. It cannot change. It will never change. You could also put here, it will never grow dim. It's, it's, it's used to with the word like the fading of flowers. I got Ann some flowers for Valentine's Day. They were beautiful day one. They were still beautiful day two. They're beautiful somewhat day three by day today. They're not look so beautiful. They've faded. The luster has faded. Can you imagine? And that's how we are. That's how we are, by the way. All of us are like that. We get excited at first when something happens, something new. And then the luster just fades. And we got to find something new to excite us. I'm always needing to be stimulated by something new because I get tired of things. You follow me? He's saying, you'll never get tired of this place. Can you imagine being in heaven and saying, well, it's just not as exciting as it was a million years ago. You know, you'll never say that in heaven after a million years. Because <laughs> it will never fade. It will never dim. The luster will never go away. I thought the most exciting thing in the world is when our cell phone company gave me an iPhone. Oh, wow, something new. I went to flip phone to iPhone. That's quite a jump. And exciting and, and confusing. And now I just soon stomp on the thing. But the point is, it just fades. I always need something new. New technology never satisfies. You see, that's just human. That's the way it is in this life. Things just never give us the satisfaction. I just wish I could keep the same excitement going. Just doesn't excite me as much anymore. No ho-hum moments, that's one writer said. No ho-hum moments in heaven. <laughs> ho-hum, oh well. Been there, done that. You know, not in heaven. That's why I have to go there with a glorified body, folks. That's why I have to go there changed and perfected. So I won't be like this. The flowers will never wilt. 
and will never lose their vibrancy. The flower fades, the grass withers, the verse says, but the word of our God stands forever and we'll never get used to it. And then he says in verse four also, this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. It's, it's an interesting, it's a perfect passive verb form here, so it's kind of interesting, meaning it's set aside for us permanently. It's been set aside for you as a believer permanently. If you're one who has been born again according to the richness of his mercy, this inheritance has been set aside for you permanently in its current condition, meaning the condition will never be altered. It's, it's not gonna change, it's the same. It was designed as it is, and it was completed. It's a perfect state, and it will go on and on and on. It's a passive verb because it is not us that has reserved it. I didn't reserve it for myself. Oh, God, give me a spot. I called in, got me a spot. No, it's none of that. He reserved it for you. He reserves it for you. Human, uh, human inheritances are subject to change. Your aunt may not like you anymore and take you out of the will. That's not how this works. It's reserved and it's permanent. It can't be changed. It's unalterable. God is watching over it for you. You won't get to the reservation desk and they say, oh, we can't find your reservation. No, it's there. Permanent. Permanent. Guarding it. That's the idea of it. He's guarding it for you. He guarantees it. Then he says in verse five, you who are protected, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is it reserved, it's protected. Peter tells us that we are also protected by the power of God in, in this, for this future salvation. It's interesting, there's nothing, not even, listen, not even you yourself can destroy this inheritance. If you're a true believer, your salvation began with the foreknowledge of God and the choosing of you and the justification and one day the glorification. That is a chain linked, all linked together and none of them can be broken. He, what he started, he will complete. He began a good work, he will see it through. Folks, if it's up to me, I've told you this many times, if it's up to any of us in this room, we would never be able to hold on to our salvation. I need the God who gave me the faith to sustain that faith in me. And that's what these people are thinking too. What if I can't hang on anymore? What if the persecution gets so bad I can't hang on anymore? What if it gets so bad I want to give up? What if it gets so bad I just, I just I'm scared I, 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 I will forfeit everything. I know how I am. God says, no, I will protect it for you. I will sustain it. I will sustain this future salvation, this glorification. I will sustain this inheritance for you. You've heard that before. Salvation has th three tenses to it, past tense. I was, I was saved from the penalty of sin, present. I'm being saved from the power of sin now, progressive sanctification. And future, the one he's talking about here, future salvation is I will be saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification. God is protecting me for that salvation. That's what he means in verse five. Excuse me. Yes, verse five. 
Your faith may get weak at times, but it's never gone. It's never gone if you're a true believer. It's never gone. That's why I say that when people say, oh, I used to believe, I don't believe anymore, I would say to them, you never believed. You never believed. John says, you went out from us. They went out from us because they were not of us. Of. And then he says at the end of verse 5, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, I'll say this much, it's 2,000 years closer <laughs> than when he wrote this. It's 2,000 years closer. Everything's ready at the appropriate time. And you better be ready. You better be ready. And Peter, so Peter has been saying in these verses, you must go to the future. If you're going to go into the future, you must think rightly Excuse me, you must go to the future to think rightly about the current affairs. That's what he's saying. Go to the future so you have the whole picture, the whole perspective, that you're seeing all of this through God's eyes and what God is doing. If you're going to deal with the here and now, go to the future and see that first. So next week we're going to come to verse 6. Just look at verse 6 real quick. In this you greatly rejoice Notice the word rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. See the word trials. Can you imagine rejoice and trials in the same verse? Rejoice and trials in the same verse because of the truths that we've just read. In this, you greatly rejoice. In these truths the richness of these truths about your great salvation. Let me give you some application in three minutes. Three minutes of application here. Practice thankfulness. I've already said this. Practice thankfulness. Folks, you all in this room have more than you deserve. That is a true statement. Whether you go around saying it flippantly or not, you have more than you deserve. All of us deserve hell. All of us do. But God in his mercy caused you to be born again. Practice thankfulness. You know what complaining just sucks? Sucks the life out of your peace. It sucks the life out of your hope. That's what complaining does. It just sucks out life from your hope and your peace. Complaining causes you to focus on temporal things. You get so focused on temporal things. That's what complaining does. Bless God. He's sovereign. He orchestrates life. He orchestrates the events that he brings into your life. Stop complaining against him. Stop complaining. God, help me not to complain, but to be thankful. Because thankfulness is what pours gas on the flames of worship and praise to God. And that's what we need. Imagine if we're all just a bunch of complainers coming here singing these songs on Sunday morning and had no hope. It would be a very pleasant place to be. But come with thankful hearts. One of the marks of the, those over whom the wrath of God is over in Romans chapter 1 are those who give God no thanks. So be thankful.
Pray thankful prayers. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I'm preaching to myself here as well. We're all prone to be complainers. Secondly, prepare your minds for action. Look at verse 13 of of chapter 1, 1 Peter. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on notice. The grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ takes you right back to what we've just seen in these opening verses. We've got to monitor what we allow in our minds. Cable news is not a good place to spend all your time. I said that earlier. Don't feed your mind with things of this temporal world, fallen world. The world is a mess. The world is evidence of life without God. The world is evidence of of life that turns its back on God, confused and distorted without purpose, without meaning. Do what Peter says, fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This would be a good time, folks, to shore up on your eschatology. You know what that means? The doctrine of last things. Go and study that. Find you a book on eschatology. Sober, fixing your hope of what the Bible says about what's going to happen in the last times and it's basically this God wins God is going to win in the end I have read the last chapter and I know he wins it's a it's a process not a pretty process getting there but he wins so thankfulness for the future fanning the flames of worship. Hey, listen, if you don't know Jesus, man, I just make a plea to you to cry out to him for mercy. Cry out to him for mercy. Listen, when you die and pass that threshold, there are no second moments. There are no second moments. It's done. It's done for eternity, and that is a very, 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 very long time. No second moments. I pray you'll cry out to him. God, I need this born again stuff. What is it? I need that. I need that. Do that in me. Cry out to him in repentance and faith. If you don't know him. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time this morning. Thank you, God, for this tremendous tremendous words that we've seen at the beginning of 1 Peter. God, they're just so rich. So rich. Lord, thank you. May it shake us up, God, and make us realize we just get so caught up in the here and now, we forget the big picture. Forget what we have to be thankful for and why we need to worship you and praise you for all eternity, from now and for all eternity. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.